Much of this verse may be uh, new to you, but you're going to recognize a few phrases that I'm going to pull out of this verse. A couple of very common phrases that we use almost in everyday life come out of Zechariah and a word that the Lord spoke concerning a priest named Zerubbabel. I'm not going to ask you to repeat that name. I don't know why they didn't call people back then Billy, Sue, instead of Jehoshaphat, Zerubbabel. But this priest had the name Zerubbabel. And the Jews were returning from 70 years of captivity and they were coming back to their land that had been not only vacated when they were carried off captive 70 years before, but the, the temple had been utterly destroyed. And it was in ruins. The great temple of Solomon that they thought would stand forever was wiped out and it was just, just rubble, just ruin. And the Lord had raised up this priest Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. And it really was just almost a laughable situation because Zerubbabel had no resources. He had a few people relative to the task. They were just insufficient. And uh, yet he had that vision to rebuild the temple. and The Lord was with him. So with that background, the Lord spoke some things to Zerubbabel and through Zerubbabel to the people of God. And the prophet Zechariah spoke them to Zerubbabel and recorded them in his book. So that's what you're going to hear about this morning. But it's a much bigger message and it's a message to us today. I call it small things. Everyone say small things. things. We're rolling, right? Uh, Zechariah 4.10. I'm just going to jump down to that verse. This is the one that has the phrase in it I want to focus on. For whoever has despised the day of small things, shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line, which is a construction tool, in the hand of Zerubbabel. Let me say this again. Uh, Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, for years, I've quoted this verse and said, The Bible says, despise not the day of small things. How many of you heard that phrase and have even repeated it? Despise not the day. That phrase, despise not the day of small things, does not appear anywhere in the Bible. It actually comes out of this scripture. And in this scripture, what what God actually says is, you who have despised the day of small things will rejoice. When you see the plumb line, in the hand of Zerubbabel. Get ready to shout, because this message has got some shouting in it. Praise the Lord. All right. Just want to let you know that this morning. Uh, this is uh, a um, not a shout-free zone. You can shout and praise the Lord. You can get up and run around the church if you're so inclined to do. And uh, just get excited, because the Lord is the Lord who begins with small things and produces great results. Amen. We hate facing big challenges with small things. It's just in our nature. We, when big challenges arise, we want to meet them with more than adequate ammunition to, to defeat those big enemies. We love the story of David with a sling against a 10-foot man, but we hate being 
in that story. You know, you, you have those dreams where the monsters are coming after you. We call them nightmares. When the monsters are coming or people that are heavily armed come and you're standing in the kitchen with a salami. You're not going to get very far. It's just a terrible dream and, and they're nightmares. And in real life, we can't stand being in that position. When um, the mortgage payment comes due and the week before the vehicle broke down and you needed to get to work and it sucked $1,200 out of your bank account. Just things like that, big circumstances, and we face them with small things. We really can't stand it. And the world uh, really expresses that feeling when it says things like, bigger is better and more is better, and there's strength in numbers. You see, phrases like that all speak to that part of our life that can't stand having insufficiency or less than an overwhelming response when big needs arise. We like joining ourselves to significant people because it helps our sense of insignificance. We like surrounding ourselves with numbers and numeric superiority. We like having great resources. We like joining very important organizations. We like being large because in and of and by ourselves, we don't feel large. As a general rule, people inflate their confidence by bringing other numbers in and they feel more secure. They, nobody wants to belong to a club that only three people belong to. Um, unless it's a very exclusive billionaire's club. Then, of course, you've got your billions to insulate you. So that being the case, and God understands how we are, and we're made in His image and likeness, why does God always seem to start His plans off with small things? Because He surely does. If you look through the Bible, God always starts with small little things, and then says he's going to do these overwhelming big things with the small things. And uh, the Lord always seems to begin with the insufficient and the insignificant and the overlooked. And I'd like to just draw a couple examples from the scripture uh, just so that you know what I'm talking about. For example, the insufficient. Is there really a better example of God using the insufficient than the mighty Moses? You know, in, he's standing in front of the burning bush, and the burning bush is telling him to go back to Egypt. He's been out in the Midian Desert for 40 years. The dashing, educated, militarily uh, uh, trained, adopted son of Pharaoh of 40 years before fled Egypt with his tail between his legs, a failure, and has had 40 years to break down and to be diminished and reduced in the Midian desert. And once he's completely so broken down that he can't talk and, and has a speech impediment, the Lord comes to him in a burning bush and is talking to him and telling him about face, I'm sending you back to Egypt to complete what you tried to do 40 years before. And the Bible says in Exodus 4 and 1, but Moses protested again. He'd been objecting all along. And he says, what if, that's how he starts his response to God, what if they don't believe me? Or what if they don't listen to me? What if they say, the Lord has never appeared to you? 
you know, he's not thinking about the fact that the Lord really did appear to him. He's worried about what if they say the Lord didn't appear to him. I mean, you think about the logic behind our, our flawed human thinking. If someone says, the Lord didn't say that to you, and you know the Lord did say it to you, what difference does it make what anybody else says? The Lord did say it to him. But he's saying to God, what if they say the Lord didn't say it to me? Does that mean you're, you're going to go back in time and withdraw the statement that you made to me? Then a little further on, God continues to deal with him and speak to him and, and shore him up and, and head him back towards Egypt. And in verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses pleads with the Lord again, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. So now he's telling God, basically what he's saying is, I am insufficient. I am insufficient for this. I'm not very good with words. I never have been. And I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me. So Moses is showing boldness that he's not even aware that he has. Because a lot of you probably wouldn't talk to God like that. But he is. He's arguing with God. He's saying, now you've talked to me, but I still can't speak. I never have been able to. I get tongue-tied. This is Moses continuing. And my words get tangled. So after this encounter, we know that God convinces him to go back. And he sends Aaron, his brother, with him to be a spokesman. The point that I simply want to make is, Concerning God choosing the insufficient, God sent a greatly diminished, in diminished capacity, Moses, stripped of his swagger, stripped of his philosophical zeal, stripped of his confidence, but he now stands reluctant yet obedient. So he goes in his obedience, but he's completely reluctant. He doesn't want to do it, but he is at least willing to do it. So here's an example of God using the insufficient, small things. We know in the story in Judges chapter 6 of Gideon that God likes to use insignificant things. Things that are so small and diminutive, they just don't matter. And so we have God calling Gideon, who's hiding in the, in the threshing barrel, the Midianites by the hundreds of thousands have poured into the land are completely oppressing the, uh, the uh, Hebrew people, and eating all of their grain and taking all of their cattle, and the Hebrews are starving. And so he's hiding in this, this threshing floor, and he's beating out a little bit of grain to, to run home with his family. So he sees himself as a scared little rabbit. And the Lord looks over the barrel, looks down, the angel of the Lord does and says, greets him. He's on his knees. He looks at the back of his head as he's down there beating out the grain. He says, Hail, mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you. And Gideon, you could just see him turning his head around, looking up at the angel of the Lord who's just spoken to him. And Gideon says this, O Lord, how, how can I deliver Israel? Just look. My clan is the poorest in Manasseh, my family, and I am the least in my father's house. Now listen to how he begins his response to God. Just look, says Gideon to the Lord. Just look. God, do you have your glasses? Go get your glasses. Look at me. Look at who you're talking to. God has said, hail mighty man of valor, you shall deliver Israel. And he says, just look at me. 
I come from the poorest family in the smallest tribe, and I'm the runt of my family. So here's a man that is, in his own eyes, severely insignificant. And so we oftentimes find ourselves in a position where we just shrug off God putting something on our heart because we say, God can't possibly be wanting me to do this. Surely the Lord can find better instruments than me. It, it, it can't possibly be. Because in our mind, since the world uses many and big and large things, we can't imagine God using little things. We think God has, does great things, but he has to use great things to do great things. There was a very famous, I'm not going to mention his name, but there was a very, very famous um, world evangelist who has since gone on to be with the Lord, but for many decades he was well known throughout the whole world for his winning of hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord, especially in Africa, back in years when there were not a lot of people going to Africa. And he was a great writer of books and, and speaker at conferences when he wasn't in Africa holding just huge crusades. And in one of his books, he made a famous quote that's been, re that's been repeated by many preachers over and over again. And it sounds great when you put it in sermons, but it never really sat well with me. I always thought there's something wrong with that comment. Um, he talks about how a preacher came to visit him once in his office and remarked at how huge his office was. He had a huge office filled with all these artifacts from Africa and everything. And he said, he said well, your office is just huge. And that world-class missionary said, well, you can't have big thoughts in a little office. And I thought, well, that's clever. You know, that sounds like you could write some business manuals and some motivational books off that. But the fact is, that's really not true. Uh, and God isn't looking for men in big offices having big thoughts. If that were the case, he surely made a mistake with Gideon. But we know that he didn't make a mistake with Gideon. <laughs> In the very next chapter, in the seventh chapter of Gideon, um, Gideon is convinced because he put the fleece out before the Lord and the Lord you know, made the dew fall on the ground but not on the fleece. And so he said, wow, I know the Lord is with me. There's no, the, the uh, I don't know why the angel of the Lord talking to him didn't convince him. But, you know, the sheepskin wasn't wet. That did it for him. So, you know, people are strange. But that did it. The sheepskin's not wet. Now I know God really is speaking. So he goes out, convinced God's speaking to him, and he gathers together an army of 30,000 men. You think, wow, 30,000. We could wipe out ISIS with 30,000 men. 30,000, that's a lot of guys. Until you read and find out that the Midianites, who had um, actually confederated themselves with a few other smaller nations, the Bible says, were strewn along Israel, along a river bank, and not only did they have more than hundreds of thousands of men, the Bible says that their army was innumerable. So that's a lot of guys. 30,000 small things, not much. So Gideon's got his 30,000, he's thinking, all right, well, maybe God's, you know, God's with me, and may, I, I've went and I've got my 30,000 guys, maybe we could pull it off. At least I feel like I've got a lot with me with 30,000 men. So in chapter 7, the Bible says in verse 5, and Gideon took his warriors down to the water, and when he did, the Lord told him, 
divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup the water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And in the other group, put all those who kneel down, lowering their face into the water, and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank with their hands. Oh, darn. <laughs> this isn't looking good. And the other 29,700 got down on their knees, dropped their faces in the water, began to suck it up. God said, send those guys home. Send them home? I already feel insignificant. I managed to get 30,000 guys, and you cut it down to 300? You just lop all those zeros off. Does God really know what he's doing? And the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. That was probably the greatest act of faith. Was the, he was the only one that heard the Lord say, send the 29,000. So he could have just kept them and said, stand over here on this hill and if you hear this whistle, come running. You know, and try to fool God. And, but no, he sent them home. And we know how it turned out. So God comforts the... Um, insignificant Gideon assuring him that he's with him but then reduces his 30,000 man army to 300. So the Lord doesn't even take compassion on us. He doesn't even make it easy for us. He, he, he finds us feeling insignificant and he doesn't help that. He demands that we just be obedient to him first. Because God knows what he's going to do. Isn't that right? Praise the Lord. And what about the overlooked? God seems to go looking for vessels to use, and he doesn't get the best stuff. He gets the stuff that's overlooked. And why would things be overlooked in this world? Because they're plain. They're not attractive. They're not big. They're just, they, they are overlooked because they're, they're surrounded by Better things that are always picked first. Have you ever been that kid that when they were selecting players for the teams, you were always the last one? The two team captains would say, I'm going to take Billy. I'm going to take Steve. I'm going to take Jeff. And there you are, standing there, you and Herbert. Last two. And they're like, all right, well, I guess you're with me then. So... God chooses the overlooked. Listen to what the Bible says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from the ancient days of eternity. You know, Great people always want to come from great places. I was raised on the streets of Brooklyn. I came from L.A. You know, musicians all want to say, I came from Nashville. I came from L.A. Nobody wants to say, I came from Leavenworth, Kansas. Great people want to come from great places. 
But Jesus comes from a village that was so small, it was overlooked, not even worth being put on the map and being named among the tribes of Israel. Yet God said, that's where I'm going to bring my Savior from. So if you feel like I'm too overlooked, too insignificant, too insufficient, whatever the reason may be, God surely, you know, the Lord steps in and says, I'm going to pick a winner, I'm going to pick a champion. And you're standing there knowing, well, I hope this gets over with soon so I can go eat lunch. And you just con convinced he's not going to pick you. But God loves to pick the overlooked. One final example. I want to share a quick example out of the New Testament of how God loves to pick the few and the small. John chapter 6, 9. He's out in the desert with 5,000 men and their families. So they're very easily could have been fifteen to 20,000 people. And they're hungry, been with them a couple days, and the Lord says to the disciples, feed these guys. And the disciples say, here is a boy who has five barley loaves and two little fish, two small fish. But what are these for so many people? That came out of the mouth of the disciples. But what are these? Now Jesus says, what do you have? to feed these people. Well, we have five loaves of bread and two little fish. But, now they had to tell Jesus, this isn't enough. Like Jesus couldn't figure that out for himself. <laughs> they had to tell Jesus, but Lord, we want you to know this isn't enough. These two fish sandwiches from McDonald's aren't going to feed 20,000 people. But you take a small amount too few, too small. And did you notice that it says too small fish? You know, not we drag two giant sturgeon here. We could might maybe get, everyone could, might be able to get a bite out of this thing. No, uh, we got two little perch and some little loaves here. So you take a small amount, you put it in the hands of Jesus. What did he do? He blessed it, and then he put it back into the disciples' hands and the miracle started. Amen. See, the, the key is not that God takes your little bit and adds to it, but that you put that little bit of your life in His hands and He gives it back to you. And when He does, it's got His miracle word working in it when He says, now go give them food. Okay, I can see them stretching their eyes. You know how we do. Okay looking at one another, stretching their eyeballs out, but then they start passing it out, and they're passing it out, and they're passing it out, and every time they reach their hand back in the bag, out comes another fish sandwich. Back in, oh, look, there's another, oh, look, there's another one. So, here's the question, and I want to now bring this to a point. Why does God like to use small things? It's a fair question. We've established the fact that he loves using small things. He likes to go to insignificant, insufficient, overlooked. God uses small things in the face of big needs so that you have to use vision rather than sight to see the tree in a seed. Because the whole universe works like that. God puts the big result in a little seed. But you can't see it with vision. I mean, you can't see it with sight. 
You have to see it with vision. Vision is the sight that faith uses. Sight is what your natural mind uses. So God uses small things, so you're forced to have to use vision rather than sight so that he can show you that forest that's locked inside of a little seed. If it's, it's God, it's God who sees the mighty man of valor inside the frightened Gideon. And so the success of small things doesn't really appear until God has developed it. God looked over that barrel that day and said, Hail, mighty man of valor, the Lord's with you. You shall go deliver Israel. But God was the only one who saw that. Even Gideon didn't see that. And I guarantee you those uh, 29,700 men that went home, went home going, Ooh, thank you, Jehovah. So glad, because we know where he was going with those 300 men. So, the, 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 the success that is in small things, only God sees it. And until God develops it, you never see it. So you've got to trust God to develop in you what He has said He is going to do. Because you're not going to see it until it's finished. Even as you are along your journey in life and God's working with you, you keep looking with your eyes at yourself and going, I'm so far behind. I'm so I'm not there, but you're not finished yet. When you're finished, it's all going to be evident. When God's finished and it's all done, then all the partying. So, woo, hallelujah, I knew the Lord was with me the whole time. <laughs> the other thing is that small things don't attract supporters like big things do. So when there's no encouragement, you have to use courage in order to see the great victory inside of small resources. Most of the time in life when God wants us to do something, the thing He wants us to do is not giving any vibe of encouragement off. There's no encouragement in your circumstances. So what do you use when there's no encouragement? You use courage. You don't have to have encouragement to do what the Lord says. You have to have courage. Hallelujah. Through courage, you can see by acting in faith and having courage, you will see the fulfillment of great victories coming out of little resources. You know, God always seems to start His plans with the insignificant, the insufficient, and the overlooked small things so that only people of vision and of courage will join him in the work. Jesus didn't come into the world begging for people to believe in him. Oh, please believe in me. Oh, please believe my word. Oh, please follow me. It is actually amazing that Jesus seems to have put more effort in sending people away than he did putting effort into attracting them. All he did was do what the Father told him to do, and people came running. But when he opened his mouth, every time he opened his mouth, people would leave and go vote for the other candidate. He was like the original worst candidate, when you really think about it. 
eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have nothing to do with me. Uh, I didn't sign up for this craziness, and off they went. They left Jesus. The Bible says all of them, and that could have been thousands of people until the only guys that were left standing with him after Jesus said that in John chapter 6 were his 12 disciples. And then he turns to them, and instead of saying, oh good, I'm so glad you guys are still here with me. I, you know, I don't know what I'd have done if I lost everybody. Instead of saying that, you know what he says to them? He said, you guys want to go too? I'm holding the door open for you. Jesus put more effort in sending people away than he did attracting people. Why is that? And I see that in the Lord. And the reason I see it is he wants only people with vision and courage. Not people who depend on sight. Not people who depend on having to be encouraged all the time. Not that he doesn't love everybody. But when he is selecting people to do great things, he looks for small people who can do small things, work with small things. And the only people who can work with small things are people who have vision and courage rather than sight and need, you know, uh, amazing amounts of encouragement to do it. Are you listening to me? Yes. Yeah, so the Lord's never going to go into a safe room to get any servants to come out and follow Him. There'll, there'll never be a single person in those rooms that'll ever follow Jesus until they come out. He's got to have, takes people of courage and people of vision. Praise the Lord. In fact, that, that this whole principle is probably no better, no, uh, there's no better summation to it than in 1 Corinthians 1.27 where Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, why would God want to shame? Why would God want to shame the wise and the strong of the world? Because in spite of all of their wisdom and their strength, the progressive generations just keep failing. Every generation fails. By the time they hand off the baton, it's corrupted with the same corruption that it had when their forefathers handed it to them. But the progressive generations of the world keep trusting in the wisdom and strength of the world and they just keep building on top of the failures of the previous generations. So the Lord looks at sin and what it's done generationally to mankind and what he sees after 6,000 years is while we have technologically advanced and while we have improved our ability to mine the resources of the earth to build things, in our wisdom and in our strength as a people, we have never been able to step one millimeter away from sin. We're not any better. We just keep getting more foul and more rotten. And every generation, no matter how it tries in its wisdom and strength, cannot improve itself. It just keeps building on the failures of the previous generations. That's the progressive generations of man that trust in wisdom, trust in strength. Yet Jesus said through the Apostle Paul, I've chosen the foolish things to shame the mighty, the strong, and, uh, and the wise. And that's because God is redeeming an eternal generation, not a progressive generation. You are an eternal generation. 
You have joined up with Abraham and David. You've joined up with the Apostle Paul. You may see yourself as having come into this thing 2,000 years after Paul, but you're really standing shoulder and shoulder with him. You're part of an eternal generation that has not turned over to the next generation. It's an eternal generation. And um, he is teaching that eternal generation the power of his grace. The power of his grace. I want you to go back to Zechariah. I hope you didn't lose your place there. Um, in that narrative, I, I started out by picking out verse 10, where the promise of Scripture says, those who have despised the day of small things will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Um, but a couple of verses before that are some, some sayings that you will recognize, certainly. And the Lord prophesied, excuse me, to, to Zerubbabel through the prophet Zechariah about this job that he had sent him to do. Listen to the amazing words that the Lord spoke concerning this project that Zerubbabel had been handed. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now let me share with you just basically what the Lord's saying. He is saying, the word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel. And the Lord spoke to Zerubbabel, said, Zerubbabel, I know you hate the day of small things. I know it's in your name. You can't stand that I've given you this great task and there's no people to help you and there's no resources and how are you going to pull it off? But Zerubbabel understands, says the Lord, it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. Hallelujah. And then he goes on to say, Who are you, O great mountain of obstacle, mountain of challenge? When he uses the word mountain, he's talking about those overwhelming bills and debts. He's talking about that, that cancer uh, diagnosis that your doctor gave you. He's talking about your son or your daughter that have backslidden and gone off into the world. He's talking about those circumstances that have surrounded you and they're like a, they've cast a shadow, overwhelming shadow, they're so huge over you. Who are you, God says? Oh, mountain, who are you? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. Now, I want you to understand why God asks the circumstances, the big circumstances, who are you? It's not rhetorical, it's specific. God says, identify yourself. You have a name, cancer. You have a name, debt. You have a name, trouble. You have a name, loneliness. You have a name, grief. Whatever that name may be, who are you? Tell me. You come with your name, and I'll come with my name. Your name describes what you are. My name describes who and what I am. So you tell me before Zerubbabel, who are you? Who are you? And then 
God goes on to say, before Zerubbabel, you will become a flat plain. Oh my God, hallelujah. That is worth a shout right there. Before Zerubbabel. Why before Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel's insignificant, he's insufficient, he's overlooked, he's a nobody until God speaks to him. Once God speaks to him, the name Zerubbabel reduces mountains to plains. Listen to me. Let me pick on Beverly. Before the name Beverly, O mountain, you will become a level plain because I have spoken to her. Who are you? I will make you to reduce before Beverly. The Lord is not the least bit hesitant to exalt your name. He fills you with Jesus. He lifts and elevates you because you bear the name of Jesus, because you give all glory to the name of Jesus. Come on, church, somebody say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Zerubbabel, after God speaks to him, all of the insignificance, all of the insufficiency is going to be transferred to the circumstances. The circumstances will become insignificant. The circumstances will be reduced to the plain level. The circumstances will have no name. The name is with you. Somebody say praise the Lord. Once God identifies you with himself, every opponent with a big name is reduced in significance before you. Hallelujah. Stop feeling insignificant. Stop identifying. They love to use that term today. Little fifth grader goes to school and says, I identify as a raccoon today. <laughs> so you have to let me wear my mask in the class. Well, it's all right, Johnny. It's all right. Do you want to use the girls' bathroom or the men's? Or the raccoons? We'll go build a raccoon's bathroom for little Johnny. People love the foolishness. But when you identify with Jesus... Hallelujah. When you identify with a son, you become a son. When you identify with the Lord of life, you become the life. When you identify with the healer, you have the healing. Somebody say praise the Lord. That mountain becomes a plain before you, the Lord says. God sets a word of faith within you so that by it you can navigate through the delays and the doubts and the defections of people leaving you on your way to completion. If you have despised the day of small things, don't condemn yourself. We all do, I do, we all have. But you know what? You who have despised the day of small things, you will rejoice when you see the plumb line, the finished work, the tool that does the finishing work, putting that capstone on top of that temple, it's done, hallelujah. And the Bible says, God finally said, Zerubbabel is going to put that capstone, the finished touch on the job, amidst all the people shouting, grace, grace. Now that's amazing because the Old Testament isn't known for grace. The New Testament's known for grace. But he says, when Zerubbabel completes what I've given him to do, the people are going to shout, it's God's unmerited favor. They will see God did this. 
The people get it. They'll get it once it's done. But they're not going to be shouting and encouraging you along the way. They're going to say, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? This is silly. But once it's finished, they're all going to swing in behind you and go, Woo, the Lord was with her. My goodness, it's the grace of God. Praise the Lord. That says to me that the Lord is going to teach the world His grace through you being faithful in small things. When you are faithful in small things, you are God's classroom to the world around you. Don't expect them to give you credit along the way. They're going to still see you as insignificant. They're going to still see you as insufficient. But when the Lord has developed it, they're all going to say, to God be the glory, His grace did it. And true servants will love that. That's right. It wasn't me. It was His grace all along working in me. So you plus the grace of God, you may despise the smallness of the circumstance, but just go ahead and praise the Lord and obey Him. You're, go ahead and take your place among Moses and Gideon. Hallelujah. And Jesus. Praise the Lord. I, um, I want to take a few minutes this morning and uh, in our prayer time on Wednesday night, John Wilkes shared a vision the Lord had given him. And I've asked him to come this morning and just take a moment and tell you about it. And then I've got a, another little word to share with you. This is on, right? We're all good. It's rolling. Check, check, check. Good. All right. Praise the Lord. John? Thank you. The other evening when we were sitting here, in prayer time, I shared this with a pastor. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was praying in the living room, sitting in my chair and doing intercession for this group right here. And God just spoke to me, just as plain as I'm speaking to you right now. And he says, by the end of this year, the first of next year, you're going to have to hold two services every Sunday morning in this place because you won't be able to hold them all on the first one. Um, now, praise God, I still get goose pimples when I think of it, but I see this place full. Amen. No question, because God said so. And when I was thinking about it right after he said it to me God gave me an example I was thinking of how small we are now you know and so on and so forth God gave me an example in the book of Mark if you read the last few verses in it it says these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they will cast out devils, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. This is the word, the last words that Jesus gave his body. That was saying, you guys got to get out and start laying some hands on people. You've got to start sharing what I've done with people so that I can work. Amen? Amen. 
Hallelujah. Thank you, John. Praise the Lord. I believe it. Praise the Lord. Two services on a Sunday morning. We'll do it. You'll make, we'll make that happen. Praise God. Well, you know, the Lord always speaks in confirmations. You know, when He brings a word, He brings a confirmation. So from one of our members up in Connecticut who comes to our regular house gatherings up there, uh, a lady by the name of Jackie Onofrio, we call her Jackie O. Um, Jackie sent me this, uh, let's see, when was this? Last Sunday. I got this when I got home from church last Sunday. By the way, when did you have that dream? Just curious. So the Lord was talking Sunday, Monday. Okay, yeah, that's just curious. Hi, Pastor Nick. I just wanted to tell you about a dream I had of you. I was at your house with some of my children. You were so welcoming, you and your family too. We had to spend the night at your house. You and Kathy walked us through your house. You had rooms and rooms filled with beds ready for guests. Beautiful blankets were on them. Then there were beds that were folded up waiting for people who needed to spend the night. Other people were behind me and my children. They were waiting their turn to see where they too could sleep. There was worship music and happiness throughout the house. What a dream! Exclamation point. All I know is that I woke up with a smile. Hope you have a peace-filled night, Jackie O. And then I responded... And she wrote back, oh, so glad I did. Have been thinking about that dream for a few days now. It struck me that there were so many people waiting a turn to see where they would be put up for the night. The house was very busy, and I was taken by the many, many rooms you and Kathy had with beds ready for guests and other rooms with beds that were folded up ready to be put to use. The love of God was so present. I heard that and I thought, yes, that's my house. <laughs> I texted Kathy and Kathy just sent back like a two or three word response saying, it's the church. That was a prophetic word. She had a vision of our church. Rooms with beautiful blankets all prepared and ready. And she arrived with her children and there were people backed up waiting to get in. And beds still unfolded up, ready to be unfolded. And uh, the Lord is bringing the captives to this place who need a loving place to stay. Hallelujah. I want you to stand with me this morning. This is what we're going to do in response to this message. Small things. Now, I know that by preaching on small things, I didn't change that nature within you that despises small things in the face of great challenges. I still despise small things. I hate to have big bills with only a few bucks in my hand. I hate in a dream when the bad guys come with a giant knife or a gun and, and I've got a salami. I still don't like any of that, but I know that God 
says, don't worry, I use small things, but I get in it and I make it happen. Hallelujah. So this morning, I want us to dedicate, not our, just ourselves individually, but dedicate collectively our body to welcoming the shepherd to come in to our midst and bring all those people with him. Come in, Jesus, and bring all those people. Let's ready these beds. Let's go out and invite them in. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we lift up our praise to you. We hear you, Lord. We hear you this morning, and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for making a lovely house with beds, a place of reception, worship music, and the love of God. We just praise you and thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, let the weary travelers come. Bring them in with their families, oh God. She came with her family. Let them come. Lord, we welcome you, Jesus, Jehovah, Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. Bring the children in. Bring the people in. Come in, Lord Jesus, to the house. We make it ready. We open the doors. We go out and welcome them in. In the mighty name of Jesus. We do it in our homes. We do it in this place. We do it as we go out. As well as when we gather in. Glory to God. Don't be surprised when people are attracted to you. When you find people coming around you. Know there's a reason. They are trying to get into the house. They're trying to get into the house. Let them in. Bring them in, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Now lift your hands up to the, to the heavens, to the Lord of hosts. May the Lord cause His mighty countenance to shine upon you. May He make your face radiant with His presence, with His love and with His grace. May His healing grace and power fill you as you go. And as you meet those that are coming in, May you have that ready word, that spiritual word of welcome to bring the lost into his house. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.